And again, I, I got, I think, one more next week. I want to talk about the Spirit. I think we'll, we'll spend some time kind of talking about the Holy Spirit, the, the role that we see. And actually, it's going to kind of be a, continuing, a continuation of the passage that we're going to look at this morning in, in the Gospel of John. Um, but yeah, I mean, just really just kind of regrounding ourselves, almost kind of establishing a baseline of the Trinity, of, of, of that reality that's behind all things. Um, and last week we, we had some fun talking about daddy issues and I shared that it was clueless was the first thing that came to mind. And then for whatever reason that led right into Star Wars, which led into that kind of funny Kim Jong-un, um, picture. And then the obscure Netflix film daddy issues that I have no idea anything about. But my, my next thought for this week was, here's my big introduction. Famous father-son combinations. Anyone? So I, they came up, and what, what happened, well, hold on. Okay, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pause my thought. That's a good one. Any others? Huh? Ooh, that is a good one. That did not come up. I would have thought of John. Yeah. Ooh, that would have been a good one. Okay. Man, you guys came up with way... Like, I did some internet research. You guys are killing the internet right now. Just destroying the internet. Yeah, the Mannings. The Mannings would be another good one. Um... The, the Michael and Kirk Douglas, maybe I would have gotten. What happened was when I was like looking at these lists, I would recognize the father, right? Like the father would be famous or I would recognize the son. But really, I, I, it, I was finding ones that would be hard to recognize like, oh yeah, I know both of those people. And, and I feel like I'm semi-aware of these things, but I was finding, but there was only one that I found that once I saw that, I was like, that's it. I don't even need to talk about anybody else. We can throw away the Mannings. We can throw away the Douglases. We can throw away all the other people. The only father-son, famous father-son combo that matters in the entire world is this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the only one, right? I mean, that's my whole intro. That's the big lead-up. Um, <laughs> Jerry and Ben Stiller, also known as Derek Zoolander and Mari Ballstein from um, <laughs> this great... This great movie. And who's... What's that? Oh, man. There's like a whole nother... Any, any Zoolander just diehard fans out there? Such a wonderful, wonderful movie. Okay, that was it. That was... That, I, hope, I hope that your pump is com- completely primed with all of that. Uh, to understand the sun, as we want to understand the sun, we want to look into Jesus, the sun, this morning. I think we should start in Genesis because as I was reading, as I was doing some studying on, on Jesus, the son, I, I came across something um, about Genesis that I thought was really fascinating as you kind of start in Genesis and then use this as a point, like an arc point for the scriptures. Okay, he's, he's looking at the lights or he's looking at the stillers? Which one is he? Yeah. <laughs> I just, okay, so we had, the little, we had the little Christmas movie and as soon as the music came on, this kid is the dancer. He is the dancer of all dancing. So, yeah, and he's waving at everybody having fun this morning. Um, so I, I thought, and anyway, it was a fascinating thing by Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting the Trinity. And he, he, he kind of talks about this, this kind of starting point for, for Jesus the Son for us to think about 
So Genesis 1.26, you kind of begin with this, where God says, as he's creating the world, right? As he's kind of creating day six, he creates, he creates man, right? God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, right? So Reeves then kind of was, was kind of backtracking. He says, well, what is that image? What is that likeness? And that's where we started when we started, um, when we started all the way back here, we said, um, we have to understand that love is that foundational dynamic of the universe, right? That the image, the dynamic, the, the kind of background, the context of all that we understand to be is the Father and the Son and the Spirit in that loving relationship, that loving, creative relationship. Um, so, again, you, you begin to say God's thinking, like, I'm going to create man in my image, um, and, and what image is that? That is a, a intimate, beautiful, self-giving, deferring, kind relationship. And then you begin to think about the fall, right? How does, how does the fall kind of, when, when Adam and Eve fall, right, when they make that mistake, when they blow it, when they eat the fruit, what, is, what does that look like in this context, right? So if you have, and this, this is the distinction that Reeves made, and I thought this was a really important distinction. I'm going to talk about, again, I think this leads to Jesus the Son. If you have what Reeves says is a singular God, right? You just have a God, just one person, like a Zeus or a, um, just kind of a, a singular God, right? Who does not create out of overflowing love. There isn't this pre-established loving creative relationship that's at the center of the universe. That's a dynamic of the universe. But you have just this singular God who's just creating, he, he, he's just creating to be served. Then what Adam and Eve, um, what happens with Adam and Eve is they fail to obey, they, they break the rules, they violate a command. And oftentimes I can probably assure you that when you've heard about the fall, when we've thought about the fall, what happened in the garden, what did they do? They broke rules, they violated commands, they, um, they, they, didn't, they didn't obey God, Right? But then Reeve said, well, what if you have this triune God at the beginning, right? What if you have the Father, Son, and the Spirit in this, in this loving relationship? They make man and woman out of their image, which is supposed to be loving, um, dynamic. And then he kind of creates this, um, this, this dichotomy to where you see that the triune God who creates man and woman in that kind of loving image, in that loving dynamic, Adam and Eve did not necessarily just break rules, but they betrayed love. And what's interesting about this is he even goes this, I'm going to quote him in a second. He says that they didn't stop loving, but that their love turned. It twisted. It perverted. Right? So Reeves says it like this. He says, created to love God, we and we could also say Adam and Eve, or we can say us here sitting in this room, turn to ourselves. The problem is deeper than disobedience. And we know this, right? We know this because you can be completely obedient in the wrong way, right? This is what Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees is that the Pharisees were completely obedient, but in the wrong way, right? Your children can be completely obedient, but in the wrong way. Reeve says Eve's act of sin was merely the manifestation, right? It was the symptom of the turn in her heart. She desired the fruit, her own wisdom, 
her own knowledge, her own status, her own prestige, her own importance more than she desired God. I would even probably go so far as to say this. I would say that the fundamental issue in a Genesis is adultery, right? Adulterers, think about an adulterer. They don't necessarily stop loving, right? But their love gets twisted. It gets perverted. It gets turned, right? So when you think about Genesis 3 in this context, right, I would say that if the fundamental breakdown in Genesis is one of love, not just rule breaking, which is oftentimes what we talk about in Genesis. Oh, they just broke the rules. They just disobeyed. They just didn't listen to God, right? But if the fundamental breakdown in Genesis is one of love, it's an, it's an act of adultery, then when Jesus comes, when we think about Jesus the Son coming to fix what was broken, right? He doesn't come just as a rule fixer or a rule restorer, but he is coming to restore the relationship. And I probably should have put another, to untwist the twisted love that we've made of it, right? So, again, you have to, and this was, like I said, when I read this by Reeves, it was so insightful to think about when you start in Genesis with this narrative, right? That the rules, the relationship, the love had been twisted. It had been perverted. It had been turned. Then you ask yourself, what did Jesus the Son come to do, right? Oh, he came to restore the relationship to untwist that twisted love. So let's look at a great passage about Jesus the Son in John 14, 1 through 11. It's on page 752 if you want to look in your Bible. This is strange. So, I typically upload my sermon notes to my iPad. And um, here we are in John 14. And that's all I got. That's all I got left. I got. see what we can do here in a little bit. Um, John 14, 1 through 11. I'm trying to think if there's a way to. Ah, let's just roll with it. Um, this great passage in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas asks a great question. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, 
you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I, speak to, I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Um, I think I meant to go to 14. Very truly, I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So I, I read this passage a couple times. It's a little bit of a difficult passage to understand what Jesus is doing. And I think the reason it's difficult to understand is a few reasons. If you kind of put John 14 kind of back in its context, right? Um, Jesus' disciples, for the most part, still have no idea who Jesus is, right? This is maybe just a couple, this is very close to the end of Jesus' life. He's, he's given this, this great passage to his, to his disciples. They have, if, if you were to ask them, if you were to transport and say, do you believe that Jesus is the incarnate son of God? They'd probably look at you a little strange and be like, uh, I don't think that's who he is, right? They probably still are holding on to, to the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah at some level, but more as a military leader. They think that Jesus is going to restore the temple in, in some senses of a physical building, right? The temple is going to be cleansed from the Romans who are overrunning it. They are still jockeying for their positions of power, Right? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your glory, can I get the right-hand seat and my, my brother get the left-hand seat? They think that Jesus' kingdom is going to be an earthly kingdom, that he's going to establish some, some sort of kingdom in, on earth. So Jesus in this passage in John 14, if we were to use a little bit of last week's sermon, is, is trying to illustrate to his disciples that he has zero daddy issues, right? That he and the Father are one, really, really one, interlocked together. And I think one of the reasons that this passage is difficult to understand is because Jesus keep, just keeps on layering this using different metaphors, different analogies, different um, sayings, different kind of way, entry points into saying, I had this whole sermon analogy where I was going to build a seven layer bean dip and talk about Jesus layering all this stuff. And I thought this would be like the real home run hitter. And then I was like, ah, it's just cheesy. I didn't, mean, I didn't mean that like as a pun and I said that and then I realized it was a pun and I was like, that's even cheesier that I used cheesy as a pun. But the idea that Jesus is, is layering his oneness with the Father, right? He's just saying it again and again and again. And he's trying to build this into the disciples' heads, right? To grasp who he really is. And we could even say that he's still trying to build this into our heads. Who he really is. For us to really sit here and take seriously the historical Jesus that walked this earth is one with the Father, right? One of the 
Trinity books that I've been reading lately. And it's been really, um, it's been really making me think a lot. This is just kind of a little side note. The author talks about, when you think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father right now as a physical human being. Right? Like when Jesus ascends into heaven, right? He doesn't all of a sudden strip all of his kind of earthly, like he still is the God that is a man, right? And there's, there is this, this oneness that these two are locked together and Jesus is trying to grasp that that is who he really is. When, I believe that when I see Jesus face to face, it's not gonna be some sort of a ghost or a weird kind of, you know, fan, um, phantom or whatever. It's gonna be a physical human being, right? Um, and he wants us to understand this. He, he layers this. So he uses a variety of, he uses a variety of, uh, again, metaphors, analogies to help his disciples grasp who he really is. The first one he says this is he says, I want you to trust in God, but I also want you to trust in me. There's this kind of generic phrase that bothers me. You know, and we, you probably hear this a lot. I hear this a lot as a pastor where somebody will say to me, well, I believe in God, right? Like, I believe in God, like, like kind of as, as, as if that's, you know, as if that's kind of the, the, the minimal entry level to get you either into heaven or at least get you to escape hell, right? And every time I hear somebody say this, again, you know, as I said, I won't, I won't disagree with my wife publicly, but in the back of my head, I'm having, I, I, in the back of my head, I want to say, that's not good enough. As a matter of fact, that's, that's really kind of, kind of nothing, right? Um, what Jesus, and, and not always, because I know that sometimes people are saying this as a step of faith and they're, they're maybe on that path to believing in God, but when Jesus uses this language to trust in God, to trust also in me, in essence, he's speaking his, to his disciples, right? And his disciples, think about the disciples, kind of grew up um, educated in the, Jewish, um, in the Jewish system. They knew God. They practiced the sacrifices. They went to temple. They did all the things. They, they knew Yahweh. They had confidence in Yahweh. They trusted in Yahweh. And Jesus is, in essence, he's saying that same trust that you have. Maybe we say it like this. You believe in God. Believe in me too. The full confidence, the trust, acceptance, and directions of our very lives must be focused on the man, Jesus. Because when we see him, right? And we're going to get a little bit to this more later. When we see Jesus, when we read Jesus in the scriptures, when we understand Jesus, when we feel that moving in our heart, that is a representation of God. And, and this has been a problem because a lot of times people think that God is some grumpy old, grumpy old grandpa that's, you know, generally disgusted with us or at least frustrated or mildly irritated. But Jesus is the sweet kind of nice, you know, like God is the iron fist and Jesus is the velvet glove. Jesus is saying that when you look at me in the scriptures and when you understand me in the scriptures, when you see me, Right? When you trust in God, you also are trusting in me. So that's the first thing that he's telling. He's like telling the disciples, like, look, you guys trust in God, right? You have confidence in Yahweh. You accept the teachings of Yahweh. Now, I want you to take that same level of trust, confidence, acceptance, and I want you to place that upon me. That's a claim.
I would not sit here on a Sunday morning and say, the same confidence that you guys have in Jesus, you can have in me. Could you imagine me saying that to you guys? Have that confidence. The trust and acceptance that you have in confidence, have that in me. Unless I was either psychotic or unless that was true. Right? That's what Jesus was saying. That's what Jesus was challenging. Then the next layer that he kind of puts on us is he uses this beautiful bride language. And and, in verses 2 to 4, it kind of flies over our head a little bit. Because we think that Jesus is just talking about houses and building houses and, and rooms and all those sorts of things. He says, my father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, I would have told you, I would not have, if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me um, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So, in, in, in that culture, in that time, right, uh, a young man comes of age probably a little bit after his bar mitzvah, so you're talking kind of teenager, 16, maybe 17 years old, right? He, he kind of comes of age. Again, in that culture, very common, um, just, you're just given a wife. The the marriage is arranged, this family's marriage, you know, arranged with this family. So the dad says, son, um, this is going to be your wife. Now then the son's job, right, the son's job is then he goes to the family compound, which might look something like this, right? And the son's job is to build an addition onto that compound, right, onto that little housing structure that him and his wife would then reside, right? So, when the son figures out who his wife's going to be, and then the son goes and says, okay, now it's time to get to work. i got to build this kind of addition, this additional room for, for my wife to live in, for, for my future family. And he builds that room, right? Now, once that room is done, then he says, dad, I've finished the room. Now I can, I can take my bride. This is what Jesus is talking about right here, right? Jesus is saying, um, my father's house has plenty of room. He says, but I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there and prepare a room for you, right? This is, this is exactly, this is Jewish bride language. What Jesus, I would say here, is he's married to his disciples. Now this extends out to us, to the church, right? Jesus married to the disciples is going to the father's house and is preparing a place for us, his bride, the church. Think of that intimate, the intimate relationship that the son has with the father to make that claim, right? I was thinking about, you know, if I said to you guys, I said, hey, um, I'm going to go back to my father's house in Pennsylvania, and um, I'm going to go make sure everything's ready for you so that you can come and visit my father's house so that you can come and be at my father's house. Now, if I flew back to Pennsylvania uh, and and went back to my town and knocked on some random door and said, hey, I got to come into your house and start building and making an addition and changing things around because I have some friends that are going to come over to your house in a little bit. They'd look at me sideways. um, They'd slam the door in my face. And if I insisted on it, they'd probably call the police. But if I went to my dad's house and I said, hey, dad, I have some friends that are coming and I need to prepare a house or a place for them. I need to prepare a room. I need to make things ready for them. My dad would say, oh, absolutely, son. Yeah, do what you need to do, right? 
It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He has that relationship, that connection with the Father in which he goes to the Father's house and he's adding on to the Father's house and he is bringing home with him his bride, right? The church, right? This is what he's saying here. The, the next layer is Jesus is saying, my relationship with the Father, again, interlocked, together. We are one, zero daddy issues. Um, <clears throat> the next layer is, is this one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's heard this verse before? And this verse often gets thrown in those apologetics arguments where people are arguing for Jesus and saying, Jesus is the only way, and you have to, and if you, if you don't go to Jesus and nothing, right? Um, Dale Bruner in his commentary, he pointed out two things. And, and the first thing he says is this. I thought this was really important. That he says that Jesus did not hurl this, and this is a big one, Christo-exclusive, right? Christ-exclusively. He doesn't hurl this Christo-exclusive text in the face of the world to taunt it. But he gave it to his disciples to encourage them, right? Oftentimes this, I am the way, the truth, and life, a lot of times people want to throw that into the face, <laughs> literally, they want to throw that into the face of the world to kind of taunt them, right? Jesus is the only way and you have to follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, right? But when you read this, initially it was given to his disciples. It was given as an encouragement. It was given as something, there we go. It was given as something to strengthen them, to build them up. Um, Bruner also referenced, and oh man, one of the great references. He also referenced um, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, the, sixth, the sixth book in the Narnia series, which is The Silver Chair. And I want to read, oh, geez. I want to read just a short section from that. And it's not to be confused, Brian, that reference was for you. <laughs> yeah. And I like just, I, at some point when I was um, studying, I, I did go down like a little rabbit trail of, of the, the great band from Australia. Yeah. yeah. Wait, are you getting in on some silver chair references? One hit wonder? Okay, my kids seriously took my book. I'm not joking. Oh, there it is. Um, yeah, I, I did get a little distracted behind, uh, behind the silver chair. I want to read this little section. When we think about I am the... Bruno references this. I thought it was a fantastic... Um, it's a fantastic reference in the silver chair. And you have this, this little girl. Her name's Jill right? And Jill is, again, as kind of all Narnia books are, she's, she's on an adventure. She's on a mission. She's kind of out there in the world. And uh, she, comes, she, comes across, uh, she comes across a lion. Um, let me read this. It's maybe a page or two. Jill got up and, and looked round her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions, but her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree, 
and stopping to peer around her at every step. The woods were so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf as a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Travalker Square. She knew at once that uh, it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could, uh, if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink, said the lion. These were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in other worlds and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? <clears throat> said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look around and a very loud growl. And Jill gazed at its motionless bulk. She realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. nearer. Do you... Eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings, emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose... If I must go and look, I, mu I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. When I think about this passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And you think about that lion sitting in front of the stream. And that lion says, there is no other stream, right? And again, is Jesus exclusive in the sense that he is the only way? You can only get to the Father, you can only get to the stream through him? In some senses, yeah. Is he inclusive in the way that anybody's welcome to go to that stream? Absolutely, right? Jesus is the way. Again, that lion sitting at that stream and I'm people dying of thirst and say, you can come, but you have to face the lion. You have to go past the lion or through the lion. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Two more. Uh, To use our senses, open eyes and open ears, just this is this is brief, but I, I can't stress this enough, especially when you read the Gospels, especially when you read the, the narratives of Jesus. Um, this is one of the dominant, if not the dominant metaphors kind of towards salvation is the opening of our eyes and our ears. Um, um and what I mean by this is, in, in Mark 4, Mark 4, Jesus tells the parable of the four soils, right? Some soil falls on the path, some soil falls among the rocks or the, the shallow soil, some, soil uh, some, some seed some seed falls upon um, the thorns, um, and then some seed falls on good soil, and he, and he uses this as a way to kind of talk about how people respond to the gospel. And then immediately after that, he says, if you have eyes to, eat, to see, you'll see, or if you have ears to hear, you'll hear. And some people would say that the entire gospel of Mark, and I would say even the, the entire gospels, are kind of based off this analogy of people who have eyes to see Jesus as he is. People have ears to hear Jesus for who he is, Right? That's why when Jesus says this, he uses these two, he uses these two, again, metaphors. He says, um, anyone, this is verse 9, anyone who has seen me, right? Now, they're looking right at him, right? So, uh, they're not, Jesus isn't saying, well, if you're looking at me, you're seeing the Father. But he says, if you see me, if you really see me, you see the Father, right? And then, in verse, in verse 10, he says, the words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, right? The words, are you hearing the words that I'm saying to you? Now, they're listening to Jesus, right? But are they really hearing? And Jesus is saying, I want you to use your senses. Open your eyes and your ears. I would say this, maybe for us to really look at Jesus, to really listen to him, with the eyes and the ears of faith, that Jesus again, Jesus again and again and again, the Father and I are one, right? The Father and I are one. Lastly, I would, I call it the full immersion experience because Jesus kind of ends this passage and he promises that we're going to go do greater things, right? And again, I think that this is an, a really interesting point kind of point out by the commentators this kind of idea of quantity versus quality. And it seems to be that most people agree that this is what Jesus is saying here. Because when you think about the quality of what Jesus did, right? Dying on the cross, forgiving our sins, restoring us back into that relationship with the Father, beating death itself, right? 
starting a movement that would ripple throughout the whole world, right? When you think about the quality of what Jesus did, you and I will never touch that, right? Jesus's quality was unbelievable in what he did. Um, it, it just dwarfs anything that, you know, even our best, on our best, our whole lives, if we are Billy Graham plus Mother Teresa plus Martin Luther King Jr. plus Martin Luther plus whoever, even if we could combine all of that in myself or whoever, we wouldn't even touch the, the quality of what Jesus did. But the commentators seem to think that when Jesus says you will do greater things, he's talking about quantity, right? And, and Bruner pointed out that in some senses when John wrote this book, this gospel, and he wrote down these words of Jesus, which has been distributed in almost every language worldwide, right? The quantity of the greater things that you and I, Jesus, Jesus ends up with what, 11 disciples, right? In some senses, I know that not every Sunday morning we have more than 11 people here. There are some mornings where we look around like, oh boy, we don't have that many. But in some senses, the quantity of people who are disciples of Jesus, right? Is, is greater than what Jesus had. There was 120 people at that upper prayer room meeting before Pentecost, right? There's some churches out there that have more than 120 people that are gathered for prayer, right? So when Jesus says this, this full immersion experience that we will actually do the things that are greater, and to be able to say that, that you're going to be able to do greater things, again, one-on-one, Jesus interlocked with the Father, all right, to close it, <clears throat> one more comment by Bruner. Fascinating, and this will take us all the way back to the garden. In verses 1 through 14, the verb believe, the stool, is used six times and is never used in verses 15 through 24. We're going to talk about verses 15 through 24 next week because that's where Jesus promises the Spirit, where Jesus is now showing that he and the Spirit are one. In verses 15 through 24, the verb agapo, which is that verb we talked about a couple weeks ago, unconditional love is used eight times and never used in verses 1 through 14. Bruner says the point should be clear. Believing is the primal reality Jesus seeks in his disciples. Loving is the resultant consequent reality as the single most natural fruit of faith, right? Takes us all the way back to the garden, the act of adultery, right? The broken relationship, the twisted love. And when we really, really believe in Jesus, when we really see him as one with the father, the son who has come, right? When we put our full confidence, trust, acceptance in him, the fruit that comes out of us, right? is the natural, it's like, it's like Jesus is repairing within us the broken love, the twisted, the twisted love, the, the perverted love. Jesus begins to grow that natural fruit, to regrow that within us, that, right? That, that unconditional love that we see in the Father. I think that should be enough for this morning. Good? Um, a couple questions to talk about this morning. Uh, some discussion. He made it all the way. He made it all the way. That's all the way for me. Um, how does your understanding of the fall shift when seen in light of perverted love, twisted love, adultery, um, of the layers of Jesus, 
uh, of the layers of Jesus's kind of oneness with the Father, which one stood out to you most and why? Um, do you normally think of Jesus as exclusive or inclusive? Can you share of a time when your eyes or ears were opened to see or hear in faith? Um, why is it not good enough just to have a generic belief in God? How might you articulate that to someone? I think those are some good questions for you all to think about. So take a few minutes and then we'll do some, uh, we'll do some group discussion after that.